Guess who's not coming to Joe Biden's Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles in June? Well, it's a growing list. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be talking to Manolo De Los Santos. He's the co-executive director of the People's Forum. He's also a researcher with Tri-Continental Institute. Manolo, welcome. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, it's your second time. It's an honor. You're back. I'm honored. Thank you. Manolo, uh, I had asked you earlier, is the Summit of the Americas Joe Biden's hosting, is it off the wheels? And you said, no, it's not just off the wheels. It's a... Complete failure at this point. A complete failure. I mean, you have the American delegation rushing to Mexico City to meet with AMLO, the head of state in Mexico, uh, because he says he's not coming. Let's just talk about the background and what's gone wrong so far for the Biden administration. Well, I think the phone lines at the White House have been quite busy over the past few weeks because different Latin American governments not just of the left, I would say many in the center, many in the right, have been calling the White House and saying, how could you be building a summit of the Americas that traditionally has to include everyone on the continent, and you haven't invited three key countries in our continent, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua? How can that be? And many countries have simply said, if they can't be invited, why should we even honor this invitation and go to Los Angeles? Some have said, why would we even send high-level delegations? And some have gone even further and say, we're not going to be there at all. I think we're coming to a situation where Biden's summit is already a complete flop, and they're running around trying to see what they can salvage. We'll have to wait and see, actually, if anything does happen in L.A. Well, there have been really dramatic announcements. Maybe they're really less dramatic in, in terms of their essence, but pretty dramatic, at least in terms of the news coverage about new moves towards Venezuela and towards Cuba by the Biden administration. And for everybody to remember, Donald Trump introduced 243 new coercive measures against Cuba. He basically shut down the embassy. I mean, not 100%, not officially, but in essence, shut it down. Basically reversed the policies of Barack Obama, who reestablished a U.S. embassy in Havana and allowed Cuba to have an embassy in Washington. That was after 54 years where there was no embassy. So Trump comes in, he's like, no, we're going to crush the Obama policy. But Joe Biden, people thought, okay, he was the vice president of Barack Obama. He's a Democrat. He's not Donald Trump. But when he got in, he maintained all of those 243 coercive measures. He was more like Trump than Obama when it came to Cuba. But now there's like envoys going to Cuba, envoys going to Venezuela. Let's just bring the audience up to date. Well, I think more than just mimicking or or maintaining Trump's policy, Biden in a way was worse because the conditions economic, the conditions of the pandemic in Latin America have made the situation much more grave. And yet Biden continued to maintain a policy of no dialogue, 
of continuing to impose these sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela without any space for negotiation. And I think what's happened is that the more that the United States punishes or tries to punish the people of Cuba and Venezuela and the people of the continent as a whole, the more the U.S. isolates itself. The more that the U.S. actually finds that in diplomatic spaces, it doesn't have any wiggle room any space to actually talk about what it actually wants to talk about. I mean, the U.S. is still interested in pushing free trade agreements in the region. It's still pushing its own model of democracy on the rest of the continent. But it can't even start that conversation because the first thing that most countries bring up, why do you still maintain this 60-year-old blockade on the Cuban people? It's just so cruel. No government in the region, right-wing or not, left-wing or not, can stand by and simply ignore it in their conversations with the U.S. Cuba was put back on the state sponsor of terrorism list, again, after Obama, and it's still on the state sponsor of terrorism list. Let's just talk about what the function of that is. Obviously, it's political. When, the, when Obama wanted to reopen an embassy, he said, okay, you're no longer terrorist. Uh, you can come off the list. And Trump said, no, you are terrorist, and you're back on the list. But being on that list is very impactful. I mean, going back to the 1980s, it was a joke to have Cuba placed on this list. It was an even bigger joke in, after the 2000s because Cuba was not only actively not engaging in any terrorist activities, it was never sponsoring any terrorist activities, but it was actually serving as a mediator, as a negotiator in the peace processes in Colombia with multiple of the different guerrilla organizations in the country and was actively working with the Colombian government to bring peace to country, and not just in Colombia, but in other parts of the region. No Latin American government can say Cuba is actually a sponsor of state terrorism. But the reality is that the weight of that list is that you essentially can't make financial transactions in today's world. No bank, whether in the US or in Latin America or in Europe, will allow you to make transactions if you are somehow on this list. It requires a series of audits. It requires a series of steps and processes that basically discourages anyone from engaging in commercial financial transactions with Cuba. Nelson Mandela was a terrorist. I mean, it wasn't So until, they say, till just recently. Even after he got out of prison. But the U.S. Congress, and people don't know this because they think the U.S. was all about ending apartheid and embracing Nelson Mandela because when he finally got out of prison, he came to Wall Street, he came to the White House, he was an honored guest. But it was only in 1988, 1988, that the U.S. Congress passed a resolution overturning an earlier resolution that had made Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress a terrorist organization while the U.S. was financing providing money and weapons for the fascist, racist, fascist apartheid regime in South Africa. So people have to think about this. When you see a country or an entity on the terrorist list, think of it as purely politics. Is there something about the political nature of the entity that's been placed on the list that challenges U.S. hegemony or U.S. imperialism or wants freedom for its people? Or is there some political slash economic agenda whereby if you're on this list, then the U.S. used that as a pretext to shut you down economically all over the world. I mean, ultimately what's at stake is that the U.S. government is opposed to any form of unity in Latin America. It's opposed to any form of sovereignty existing in the Latin American context. Biden reminds us constantly that he still sees 
Latin America as its backyard. Whether he calls it the front yard or the backyard, in his mind, in the minds of most leaders in Washington, Latin America continues to be its backyard that has to always submit to the designs of the White House. If you go against that, right or left, you are an enemy of the United States. And the Cuban people have had to pay the price for that for the last 60 years. Not because they declared themselves a socialist revolution, but simply because they fought for their sovereignty. They fought for their independence. They have chose to have their own independent foreign policy throughout these years. Well, you can see when you look back at what were once classified documents, now unclassified documents, the U.S. planned the overthrow of the Cuban government and Operation Mongoose, not when Fidel declared the country socialist, not when he said, we're Marxists after all. It was when they decided to lower rents, when they decided to cut people's electric bill, because these were American corporations that essentially own the island. So the U.S., Wall Street is telling Eisenhower first and then Kennedy, look, he's going to reduce our profits in Cuba. He's going to take some of that money and give it back to Cubans like we have to overthrow him. So he became an enemy way before he declared that Cuba was socialist. Exactly. And I think that, again, poses the reality that for so long, for so long, the U.S. has been in the main enemy of democracy, of progress, of the rights of most people who live in the Latin America and the Caribbean region. The U.S. has consistently opposed any step towards human progress in our region. And ultimately, what the countries like Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua, but many others have been trying to do is, how do we build a common platform of the Latin American countries that allows us to think about our own development on our own terms? And I don't think the American people are opposed to that. Yeah, you know, it's important. It's important because there's the ideological element of the struggle that the U.S. has waged against Cuba, what Fidel called the nonstop war against Cuba. There's the ideological element because the Cubans are led by a communist party. They promote socialism and the, America, the U.S. government is the archenemy of socialism. But there's this other element which in a way it conflates with socialism, it intersects with socialism, but it can be independent even of socialism, which is the yearning and the aspiration of Cuba or Venezuela or Colombians, Brazil, Argentina, the people in the Caribbean. It doesn't matter where they don't want to be dictated to. They don't want to be ruled over. They don't want to be told, you must do this or you must do that. You must be this way or that way. People just don't want that. I mean, it's so telling. The president of Guatemala yesterday speaking on this question, he is not a progressive president. He is not a socialist president. He doesn't speak, I would say, favorably of the struggles of most working people in this country. But his message was clear to Biden. Even if our country is this small, you can't tell us what to do. You have to respect our desire to have an independent foreign policy. You have to respect our country's sovereignty. Why is that so hard many decades later for the U.S. government to understand? Obama said he was turning a page on this. He actually spoke in the Summit of the Americas back in 2009 in Trinidad and Tobago and, and spoke of the U.S. wanted to turn the page. It wanted to sort of write a new page in history of its relationship with Latin America. A few months later, the coup in Honduras took place. Mm. And we've seen since then a series of other coups, all financed and organized by the United States. I don't think Biden has been any different. He says one thing. He says he wants to have favorable, better relations with the region. But his actions continually demonstrate the opposite, that the U.S. sees as nothing 
but as their backyard. Well, let's talk about some of the the ironies, the ironies of history sort of generated by this same phenomena that you're you're talking about. Back in 1954, talking about Guatemala, the Guatemalan government, the Arbenz government, dared to nationalize the United Fruit Company, and the U.S. CIA moved in and toppled it in a coup, and tens of thousands of Guatemalans died. The year before, the Mossadegh government in Iran had dared to nationalize the Anglo-Iranian oil company, what we now call BP. And so they did the same thing to Mossadegh. They imposed on the Iranian people the Shah, a monarch, a dictator. Same thing happens to Guatemala. So here you are 60 years plus later, and the Guatemalan government is not a socialist government. It's a right-wing government. But things have changed in Latin America. Latin America doesn't want to go back to where it was 60, 70, 80, 100 years ago. Think about talking about ironies of history. The U.S. sponsors the coup d'etat against Dilma in Brazil. She had won the fourth straight election for the Workers' Party after Lula had stepped down. She was the least corrupt politician in Brazil, and she's impeached with a U.S. CIA operation as for corruption. So then we get this fascistic Bolsonaro, but Bolsonaro might not come to the summit too, because it's not simply about ideology. Bolsonaro's statements were, we're a big country. You have to meet with us as if we're equals. Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is that the historic approach of the United States government towards Latin America has been one that always assumes that there has to be full spectrum domination of the relationship. In other words, the U.S. can be the only one to determine what the nature of that relationship is, on what terms that relationship takes place, and what are the possibilities for the development of that country based on the needs of American capitalism. That has been the story of the U.S. relationship with this continent. And I think whether right or left, most governments have come to the conclusion that we don't want to go back to the period of the Washington Consensus. We don't want to go back to the period where we simply have to lay down and allow the U.S. to reap all the benefit, all the profit, and leave not even the ruling classes of those countries with anything meaningful to develop their countries with. That is a reality at this point. You know, the Monroe Doctrine, which we all learn a little bit about in school, in 1823, James Monroe makes this proclamation, which in many ways was meaningless at the time because the U.S. was a, still basically a small country. But basically what the Monroe Doctrine stipulated was the U.S. wasn't going to mess with any of the colonies already established by European capitalist, imperialist, colonial powers. We're going to mess with any of them, but that the U.S. was not going to allow any more colonization in the Western Hemisphere. Now, that wasn't simply for Latin America. There was efforts by European powers to still colonized parts of what became the Northwest of the United States. But then along comes Theodore Roosevelt at the turn of the century, the real imperialist, the president who brings the U.S. into the imperial era. And there's the, what's called the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, which also now stipulates, it's a message not to the Europeans, it's a message to people in Latin America. If any of you do anything that we don't like, we're going to come in and act as the policeman. We're going to invade your country. And then if anybody wants to go and look up on the Internet, all of the U.S. interventions in Latin America, it's like 100. The U.S. Marines are invading Nicaragua and Haiti and Cuba over and over and over again. This was before communism. 
It wasn't a threat of communism. They just were telling the people of Latin America, you are our slaves. You are essentially our subjects, and we will dictate to you. And now we, here we are 201 years, no, 199 years after the Monroe Doctrine, same thinking on the part of the U.S. and the people in Latin America are saying, no, thank you. I mean, when we look at the false narrative that the United States has created, with both the Monroe Doctrine, with the Roosevelt Corollary, and the updating of this policy throughout time, it's that the idea that Latin Americans are unable to not only think for themselves, but they are unable to rule themselves. The Latin American people are unfit, are uncivilized, incapable of determining their own futures. In fact, when the United States invades the Dominican Republic in 1916, when it invades Haiti, at the same time, when it invades Mexico, when it invades Nicaragua in those years, it's always of the excuse, these are ungovernable people. They have demonstrated an incapacity to determine their own future. And therefore, the United States is the only one capable of determining that future for them. Not much has changed. Obviously, there's a new language and there's a new code to justify it now, but the policy has been, and now through institutions like the OAS, to imply that the United States, with over a million deaths in COVID, is the only one capable of determining a COVID public health policy for the rest of Latin America. And it excludes Cuba, the country that has developed five vaccines with barely any resources from that key conversation. The United States, which has arrested and murdered so many migrants coming to this country, wants to impose and lead a conversation on how immigration should be organized in the rest of the region. With what authority? With what legitimacy? Does the U.S. have any credibility to lead any conversation when it comes to democracy in this continent? That's why the Summit of the Americas could be, it should be a space where all these countries, regardless of their ideological lines, are able to come to a dialogue on this. Because I actually think that among Latin Americans, we have proven this many times before, there's an incredible capacity to create responses, solutions, programs of development on our own needs for our own people without U.S. intervention. I want to pick up on this theme because there's an element, again, maybe we'll stick with the theme of the ironies of history. At the time that the United States invades Cuba and Puerto Rico in 1898 and, and snatches countries that yearned for independence but were Spanish colonies and takes them and basically essentially makes them U.S. colonies, or in the case of Puerto Rico, a literal colony. At the same time, the U.S. steals parts of Colombia and creates the canal in Central America, the Panama Canal, and at the same time invades the Philippines, another Spanish colony, but all the way over close to China, close to mainland Asia. And you can see the U.S. was establishing a colonial beachhead in the Caribbean, creating a canal so that the industrial products of the Northeast cities, the factories in in the North and America could go through the canal and off to Asia. The John Hayes had the open door notes, the Secretary of State at the time. The Philippines was going to be a launching pad for the U.S. entrance into China because the Europeans already had China. Now, the reason I'm mentioning it is here we are a century and 20 years later, and you have China rising as an ascendant economic power, 
talking to Latin Americans. Regardless, China's a communist party-led country, so is Cuba. But many of the other countries in Latin America are certainly not communist. They could be conservative, they could be liberal, they could be social democratic, not communist. But there's a bridge that's being built, a bridge between China and these countries that yearn to be independent. And the U.S. is actually now going to war against China. It's going to war against any independent countries in Latin America. It wants to disrupt the so-called Belt and Road Initiative. Again, there's the ideological element in the struggle against imperialism, which we'll call socialism versus capitalism. But there's this other fundamental yearning to be free, to be independent in the countries that were the colonized or semi-colonized are finding a way to be together. Yeah. I mean, I would say that the saga of national liberation struggles, in a sense, has not ended for most of the peoples of the global south and certainly hasn't ended for the people of Latin America. Because precisely in this period, we're seeing how much the U.S. in its waging an economic and financial war against China, but against all its enemies and what it calls its axis of evil and any other terms that it uses these days, wages that war in places like Latin America, in places like Africa, in the countries of Asia. It wages that war on the basis of destroying any possibility that our countries can have economic independence. It raises the possibility that any attempt, and we've seen that just so recently, when countries like Argentina try to negotiate loans and commercial and economic projects with China to simply reduce their dependence on U.S. trade, to have multiple partners, including the U.S. still, that gets shut down immediately by the U.S. government, which sees any type of independent relationship beyond the U.S. to be a threat to its interests, economic and financial interests in the region. That is of concern for us in the world that we live in today, because ultimately we have to be able to before we can talk about political independence from Latin America, which is important, Latin America needs to have the capacity to not only feed its people, but to trade with the rest of the world without the intervention of the United States government. Yeah. You know, the U.S. says we are not only the greatest democracy in the world and everyone should mimic us, follow us, but we are the upholders of the rule of law. We're not like a despotic The rules-based order. Well, that's a new twist. We have that, the <laughs> rules-based order, a new version of the rule of law. But this is, they say, well, unlike the communist countries or other countries, but especially the socialist camp, we follow the law, you know, and our judges are just like referees calling balls and strikes as they see them. There's no, there's no politics here. It's rules. It's rules. It's procedures. Now, there's a rule, and it's a law. It's called the Vienna Convention, and it was signed many decades ago, and it says that any country that has a diplomatic compound in another country, and all countries have diplomatic compounds somewhere, each of the other countries, that those compounds, that those buildings, those embassies are inviolable, that no country can do anything bad to those embassies, because it's all in their mutual interest not to have at a time when things have gone bad, when relations are bad between countries where the embassy or the embassy personnel are threatened. Now, Manolo, three years ago, I was out in front and many of us were inside the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C. And 
just a couple months before that, the Trump administration announced that Venezuela had a new president. His name was Juan Guaido. He had never run for president. At the time that he was announced to be the new president, I think 86% of Venezuelans had never heard of him. But nonetheless, he, the U.S. announced that he's the president. And then the U.S. also moved forward to seize the actual embassy of the Venezuelan government in Georgetown, in Washington, D.C., where I live. And a number of us from the Answer Coalition and Code Pink and Popular Resistance, Black Alliance for Peace and others, we came together and as the invited guests of the Venezuelan embassy, the rightful owners of the building, we decided to stay there and resist the effort by the government that speaks in our name to violate the Vienna Convention and seize this compound. And we were there for six weeks Right-wing Venezuelan counter-revolutionary thugs came and tried to carry out and did carry out violence and break-ins and vandalism in the building. We held out until finally the police came in with Secret Service right behind them and arrested the last members of the delegation. And then they indeed gave the embassy to Juan Guaido. The British seized Venezuela's gold. I mean, just let's talk about what the last three years are because all the Democrats or liberals said, oh, that Trump. Trump is really bad. But, you know, the embassy still belongs to Juan Guaido, apparently. I mean, isn't it time to give it back to its rightful owners? And what about the gold? And what about all of Venezuela's assets? Well, first things is that from the beginning, when it came to foreign policy by the U.S. towards Venezuela, but also towards Cuba, there was almost complete consensus between Democrats and Republicans on the way Trump was managing the situation. They were all in consensus about what is essentially piracy. The fact that the United States intentionally was stealing the assets of the Venezuelan government abroad. The embassy was an important symbol taken up by a group of activists in D.C., including yourself and others, who understood that it was a symbol worth defending. But what the U.S. was taking was not just the embassy. It was taking millions of dollars I would say hundreds of millions of dollars in assets that belong to the Venezuelan people, including oil refineries that were based in the United States, bank accounts across the world that were being used essentially to help feed the country, that were used to buy medicine, that were used to buy essential supplies that the country needed to continue to survive, stolen in broad daylight by the United States government. You referred to this question of rules and laws. The constant sort of remarking by the U.S. government that it always respects rules and laws. When it attacks China, it always says China doesn't follow the rules and the laws that have been established internationally. They have been agreed to by multilateral meetings and partners. The reality is the world's greatest criminal when it comes to the violation of these rules and laws is precisely the United States government. During this same period, it's been incredible how from the White House, plans were being made to mine, to blockade, to attack Venezuelan ports. Threats were being made and plans were being made to invade Cuba and Venezuela at some point. This was all being discussed in the Oval Office. With what rules and what laws? Well, I want to ask you about this because Venezuela's ambassador to the United Nations, Samuel Makata, He's a very active member on Twitter, and I encourage people to go to the ambassador's Twitter page today because 
He's taken Mark Esper's book, A Sacred Oath, A Sacred Oath. Mark Esper, you probably don't know or remember who Mark Esper is. These people rotate through Washington pretty quickly. Well, some people know him as the former CEO of Raytheon, one of the biggest weapons manufacturers in the United States. That would be one way to remember Mark. Another way would be to remember him as the Secretary of Defense under the Trump administration who resigned a few days after the election because I guess Esper wasn't willing to go all the way and try to help Trump carry out a coup d'etat in Washington. He was willing to help carry out a coup d'etat in Caracas or in Havana, you know, or Managua. But he thought maybe Washington's just one step too far. So he's written a book, A Sacred Oath, and Samuel Moncada, the Venezuelan ambassador to the UN, has taken this book apart. Well, all he really did was reprint. He just quotes. He quotes the book. It's amazing. So Trump is there with Esper and and O'Brien, who is the national security advisor, and they're meeting also with Juan Guaido, March 2020. Uh, this was, you know, a year after they had and, seen... And their fake ambassador in D.C., Vecchio. Oh, yeah, Carlos Vecchio. Yeah, the ambassador who wasn't an ambassador. They're all sitting there, and Trump says, well, do you want us to invade? And Guaido is like, um, uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe, but even funnier than that is that when they keep pressing on this question a day later, and they're asking, you know, the U.S. is asking, well, can the Venezuelans raise an army? The meaning, the Venezuelans meaning Juan Guaido. Yeah, can Juan Guaido and his allies and his partners, Vecchio and others, who had a group of exiles in Colombia, could they raise an army? The response from Guaido was classic. Said it's complicated. It's complicated, but that it would be better to have U.S. troops. Yeah, and so then Trump realizes, and again, Samuel Moncada is going through and quoting Mark Esper's book, which is, in this sense, it's a really useful resource. I don't think anybody should buy it, but at least read the ambassador's tweets. There are great websites where they can be downloaded from. Okay, and that's you're following the international rules-based order there, of course. of course. But it's really an admission that the U.S. is openly talking about, do you want us to invade? We can invade, but we'd rather have you raise an army and we'll help you. And all of this talk, obviously, about going to war against the country that the U.S. is at peace with. Now, the U.N. Charter is very clear. It's illegal for any member nation in the United Nations to go to war to carry out military activity against an, another member nation, except in the case of imminent self-defense, meaning Venezuela was about to drop a bomb on the United States, then the United States has the legal right to take military action. Clearly, that was not the case. So they're openly talking about how to flaunt international law, not following the international rules-based order or international law. They also talk, and Trump and O'Brien are advocating setting up a full naval blockade around Cuba, meaning put U.S. battleships around Cuba and along the coast of Venezuela, and then deprive any country from being able to do any trade. So this is obviously an act of war. And Mark Esper says in the book, according to the ambassador's tweets, well, what happens if they don't let us board with their interdicting ships? Like, this is an act of war, you know. And so he says the room falls silent. And I'm thinking like, these are a bunch of cowboys. I don't mean to demean cowboys, but you know, this is the hubris, the arrogance. Like, let's get together with this Juan Guaido and Carlos Vecchio and talk about how to carry out what is clearly an illegal imperialist military operation. And there's only a few hesitating voices in the room. Most of the people are like either silent or, you know, thumping their own chests. 
Well, it's clear that there's no rational thinking in the White House. There wasn't under Trump, and I don't think there is under Biden right now. There is no, what we read in Mark Esper's book is simply a group of guys, bros, hanging out in the Oval Office, dreaming of fantasy plans on how to dominate the planet. But their thinking was so based in fantasy that everything they talked about, even the most limited actions they talked about, completely failed. They completely failed. They weren't able to bring Venezuela under. They weren't able to bring Cuba under and force Cuba to break its relations with Venezuela. They planned a mercenary invasion on Venezuela. It was a complete disaster. From Colombia. From Colombia. It was a complete disaster. A complete disaster. And again, it makes you wonder. You would think that if the U.S. even paid attention minimally to its relations with Latin America, it would bring in experts. It would bring people who actually knew a little bit something about these countries to actually think of how to actually have a constructive dialogue. But the U.S. is not interested in that. And this book proves it. And the Biden administration are proving it by not even bringing people into dialogue in the summit of the Americas. You know, I think it's pretty important when for people to just wrap their head around the point that you're making, Manolo, which is that the people running the show are very rich, privileged people who are never held to account. They don't go into battle themselves. Their children don't go into battle. They don't know what sanctions are like. They don't know what poverty is like, even in their own cities or country. They are truly people born with a silver spoon in their mouths. And they're rewarded for gaming out all of these imperial scenarios. Again, they don't understand the language, the culture, the people, the aspirations. They don't even care about that. And when you think about Vietnam, Think about the Vietnam War. You know, millions of Vietnamese die, 58,000 Americans. You think about what happened in Iraq or Afghanistan where the U.S. can't beat the Taliban, right? And now you have the same people like, let's escalate the war in, in Ukraine against Russia because the Russians under, in, a, in a corner. Or let's like really go for it and seize the embassy of Venezuela or, you know, all of these actions. And even though they fail and fail and fail, but because there is no accountability and because it's a rich and powerful country, the same repetition of mistakes happens over and over and over again. So people sometimes mistake power with actual sort of knowledge or insight or wisdom, sagacity, whatever you want to call it, about what the U.S. should do. The only reason they're not being held to account is the American government is so rich and so powerful that everyone's cushioned after they fail. I mean, imagine that in the year 2020, essentially the U.S. government was proposing to starve millions of people in both Cuba and Venezuela to death in order to achieve their plan of putting a puppet president in power. Imagine that. I think in a way, this sort of failed policy of the United States government to impose itself by all means, by all force, has ultimately made it lose any sense of credibility, even with right-wing governments in the region. Because you have to think, the implications of policies like this towards Cuba and Venezuela affect countries like Colombia as well. Mm. It affects countries like Brazil and Argentina as well. It affects everyone. In Latin America, you cannot separate the problems of Cuba from the problems of the rest of the continent. And that's what the U.S. also fails to realize. Whether we like it or not, Latin America shares a common space. Not only does it share aspirations, but it also shares a reality in common of having to face 
poverty, of having to face immigration, of having to face a series of challenges that block its development. The fact that the U.S. was so callously thinking of putting at risk the peace of the region, I think was an eye-opener for many regional leaders that we cannot allow this. And I don't think, again, the I don't think the president of Guatemala, I don't think the president of Brazil are proposing an, a revolutionary front against the United States. But it's simply a hold on. If, if you're going this crazy, we have to hold off this conversation. And people should understand, as you're, I think, also presenting, there's the, the humanity or lack thereof in terms of U.S. policy and the thinking of U.S. policymakers the ridiculousness of their policies, the fact that they're actually mistakes. You think about Cuba, island country, um, you know, it's got a great healthcare system. It's, it's poor because it's endured, you know, 60 years of economic sanctions. I mean, Cuba has to go thousands of miles away to buy aspirin, you know, rather than 90 miles away to the United States, which would be its natural trading partner. Everything is more expensive. Countries have to, they're given this choice. Well, do you want to trade with Cuba, a country of 13 million? In which case, you won't be allowed to trade with the United States, a country of 360 million. So you choose. So even governments that want to do business with Cuba, they can't, they can't really bring themselves to like endure complete economic isolation. Then you have COVID comes. And COVID is a genuine human global problem. And Cuba, which thrives or survives really because of tourism, that industry dries up overnight. And so Cuba now has all the revenue, limited revenue that it might have in spite of the blockade. That's shut down. And you have to also lock down parts of the country because you don't want people to get sick and die. And also the strain on the healthcare system will be so immense. So it's at that moment that the U.S. says, let's tighten the noose. Let's really tighten the screws on Cuba. And you have Biden who comes in and says, I'm not Donald Trump. I'm not that guy. And he says, but I'm going to keep all of those measures, all 243 coercive measures on Cuba at that moment. That would show that whatever the U.S. government says about itself, it actually is the enemy of humanity. You can't pursue that policy knowingly, intentionally, calculatingly, and then pretend to be a human being in the sense that we mean it. Maybe in a zoological sense, you're still a human being, but in the sense of having humanity or empathy for humans, obviously that's not you. I mean, to think about the fact that in the middle of the pandemic, when Cuba, as a poor third world country that you described so well, was struggling with the loss of revenue to actually find solutions for its people, in the midst of a crisis that no government was prepared for around the world, but that many governments chose to confront differently. The lives that were lost in Cuba because of lack of medicine, because lack of supplies. The direct culprit is the United States government, who not even in this moment of great crisis, even when the United Nations and other international agencies called for all sanctions and blockades to be lifted because of the pandemic, even Pope Francis called for a lifting of blockades and sanctions in the spirit, in this moment of pandemic. The U.S. refused to listen. Biden refused to listen. We, with the Answer Coalition, with organizers from across the country, with Code Pink and others, called for Biden to let Cuba live, 
We put out an ad in the New York Times and wrote a letter directly to the White House saying, now is the time, precisely because we're living in a pandemic, give some relief to the Cuban people. Allow remittances. Allow families to be able to travel. Allow people to actually reconnect and support people in Cuba. The response was not mute, but it was clear. We are going, the U.S. government was going to asphyxiate and strangle the Cuban people as much as they could. And if they're making any measures today, which I don't see as concessions, I see them as a response to the fact that the Cuban people have not given up. The Cuban people have proven over the 60 years that their resistance is the most important thing. They will not give up in the face of hunger, of the desolation, of the contradictions and the problems all created by the U.S. blockade. They have resisted so much that even in the the most difficult moments of this pandemic, when oxygen was lacking, when medical supplies were lacking, they didn't give up at all. The U.S. may want to continue its blockade, but the Cuban people are still there. And so are the people of Venezuela and the people of the continent. Yeah, and I only wish more people in the United States could actually go to Cuba because I was able to take people to Cuba in the 1990s, including Cuban-Americans who once they got there, they had grown up in Miami, and once they got there, they were like, oh, I've been lied to my entire life. They became like militant defenders of the Cuban Revolution precisely, not because everything was perfect in Cuba, but because they knew that everything they had been told was in essence a lie. So they were just in a state of shock. But you get a sense of the values in Cuba, the dignity of the Cuban people. I mean, you can't really get this from a book. You actually have to go. You have to go and visit and experience it for yourself. And I think one of the points of the blockade of Cuba has always been to make sure the American people don't learn about Cuba. The blockade is economically targeting Cubans, but it's targeting Americans. You know, we're 90 miles away. We could be neighbors. Obviously, Cuba is not a national security threat to the United States. When September 11, 2001, terrorist attacks happened, the Cubans reached out to the United States to embrace the U.S. efforts against terrorism, and the U.S. rebuffed them. The U.S. said, no, we're not interested. We don't want cooperation. But why? I mean, when you get down to it, and this is what I want to ask you. What's the reason there's this nonstop war against Cuba? I mean, okay, you could say in 1967 when Che went to help liberate the poor in Bolivia that Cuba was exporting revolution or supporting revolutions or when the Cubans went and supported the people of Angola against the racist, fascist apartheid regime in the 1980s in their struggle for national independence. You could say, well, look, the Cubans have a very assertive foreign policy, whatever. That's 1960s, 1980s. Right now, what would be the possible threat that Cuba would pose in any way to the U.S. empire? And the only thing I can think of is if Cuba is stable, if it succeeds, then the people in Latin America who are suffering lots of poverty, lots of unemployment will think like, wait, if Cuba can be a stable socialist economy, that's the model. Yeah. I mean... There's no possibility in this world of Cuba being a threat militarily or in any other way to the United States. The threat, in many senses, is moral. On one hand, the fact that Cuba is an independent, sovereign nation that determines its future. Whether the U.S. likes this or not, that is a threat, an example that shines to the rest of the continent. Again, 
many people, many governments in Latin America don't agree with socialism. They don't agree that Cuba should be socialist. But they are in deep admiration for the fact that the Cuban people and their government have been able to maintain their independence at all costs. The fact that they have survived this long already is an inspiration to many other governments in the region. If the Cubans can be independent, so can we. We should maybe be able to determine our own policies and not always cower to the U.S. interests in the region. But secondly, look at the example of Cuba under COVID, under the pandemic. A country that barely had $50 million to invest in vaccine development and did it within a short period of time, only a few months. That's an example to the rest of the world when you look at the havoc created by COVID, by the fact that in the U.S., it's been the pharmaceuticals who have greatly enriched themselves at the cost of many millions of lives around the world. Cuba is saying, what we have, we will share with the planet. We will share with the poor people of the world. We will share with governments, whether we agree or not, we will share. That in itself is a moral example that the U.S. has never been able to produce. If before the pandemic, millions of people around the world believed in the American dream or believed that America was somehow a beacon of progress and hope, the pandemic has helped to shatter that image. Cuba is the country that stands, I would say, not alone, but is one of the few countries in the world that stands on the podium of human dignity, of solidarity, of the values that actually human beings all over the world share in common, which is that when someone's in need, we help each other. The U.S. stands quite below Cuba on that standard. Yeah, I think that's so important. And again, I, I want to encourage people to try to go to Cuba themselves, because if you scroll through the U.S. mainstream media, you won't get any positive stories. I mean, Cuba as an island cut off from the rest of the world economically, evicted from the world economy, develops five vaccines on its own. The people in Cuba didn't have vaccine hesitancy. They weren't afraid because there's no pharmaceutical company making billions of dollars off of selling them medicine because Cuba, in Cuba, medicine is free. It's not for profit. It's not a commodity. And we would have wanted people in the U.S. to actually hear these stories. I mean, you said how much the blockade not just affects the Cuban people of Cuba, but it affects the rest of the world. It affects the American people. We wanted people in the U.S. to hear these stories. We invited a delegation of some of the Cuban scientists who worked on the vaccine. We invited athletes. We invited religious well, let figures. Let me ask you, because this is where I was going to go. You're talking about to come to the alternative summit that you're organizing. Yes, we invited them to come participate in the People Summit for Democracy, which is our counter-summit to the exclusive summit of Biden's friends that is already a flop. Well, let me, let me just talk about this, because this is so exciting. I was just out in Los Angeles. I saw you there. There's hundreds of organizers and volunteers working round the clock to create this counter summit, the People's Summit for Democracy. And people are coming from all over Latin America. They're coming from all over the United States. It's highlighting the fact that the Summit of the Americas is a sort of a forum for the elite, the powerful, the bankers, the war makers, that Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua are excluded. Others are boycotting or not coming or sending low-level delegations like the Caribbean countries in solidarity with Cuba and the others who are excluded. Uh, poor people are mobilizing. You have the Poor People's Campaign. You have teachers' unions, public sector workers' unions. I mean, it's a really exciting project, and people 
you invited people from Cuba to come. And the U.S. said, of course, no. I mean, we are trying to actually create a diplomacy of the peoples that actually believes in dialogue and believes in debate. We're not afraid in the same ways that the U.S. government is afraid. We're not afraid to talk to the other people of this continent. We're not afraid to talk to the Cubans, to the Venezuelans, to the Nicaraguans. We're not afraid to talk to fighters and organizers and, and trade unionists from across the region who say, we have a story to tell about our fight for democracy too. And we shared so much in common. And we invited the Cubans because, we, again, we wanted to hear them. Rarely do we ever get the chance to look at Cubans living on the island who are building their society on their own terms. We rarely get to have that opportunity. We invited 25 of them to come to Los Angeles to speak at the People's Summit on science, on women's rights, on Cuba's advances in terms of LGBTQ rights, on Cuba's fights against racism, across section of society. We even invited a young man who had just recently in the Tokyo Olympics won bronze medal. We invited them because we wanted to hear them and see them face to face. The U.S. opposed to dialogue within the official summit of the Americas is apparently also opposed to any dialogue between the peoples of our continent. They have prevented a unique opportunity for young people in the U.S. to interact with young people from Cuba. They've robbed us of this opportunity. And I think it's telling of why this official summit is a failure. They're afraid of our people actually building together, of actually coming to realize that if we want to build democracy, it takes all of us, not just a few rich and powerful who happen to live in the U.S. The fact that the U.S. is blockading information, doesn't want Americans to hear Cuban scientists or authors or feminists or people from the LGBTQ community, well-known Cuban athletes, it's so indicative. You know, I was, I was working on a thing called the U.S. war crimes in Korea during the Korean War. This was 21 years ago. And I went with Ramsey Clark, former U.S. Attorney General. We went all over South Korea and North Korea, and we got video testimony of people who had been harmed, hurt, or whose loved ones had been killed by the U.S. in all of these massacres in the Korean War, North and South. The South Koreans could come. We had a big event at Riverside Church. The, the U.S. government allowed the South Koreans to come, but they said, no, we can't let North Koreans come. So all these older folks from North Korea who are obviously civilians were denied access. I mean, it's such, you know, the U.S. always talks about the Chinese firewall and, you know, the suppression of information in socialist countries. We have that all the time. Anyway, there are ways to get around it. We brought video from North Korea. Will there be video presentations from yes. the excluded? Our Cuban friends already said they're going to be in L.A. in one way or another. They're going to send their video messages. They're going to join us by Zoom. They're going to join us in live streaming the activities of the People's Summit. They're going to send music. They're going to send art. They're going to be there with us in spirit. Because ultimately, what the U.S. wants to achieve, which is a complete negation of the relations between our people, we will not allow for it. We will not allow them to cut our ability to build friendship with the people of Cuba, with its young people in particular. We're going to do everything we can, essentially, to assure that whether the U.S. government likes it or not, the voices of the people of Latin America will be heard loud and clear in the streets of L.A. from June 8th through the 10th.
All right, and Manolo, final question for people who want to come, and I hope people from all over the United States do come. I think it'll be an amazing experience. There are moments in history where people come together. You know, when I was a young teenager, you went to Chicago in 1968, or you went somewhere where people were really coming together to do something meaningful. I feel the summit in Los Angeles could be one of these really important moments. So just describe real quickly as we wrap up What's going to be happening? It's June 8th through the 10th. There's going to be, obviously, panels and seminars. Will there be music, culture? Will there be street protests? Let's, what's the program? Well, I think it's going to be a life-changing moment for many young leaders, activists, organizers across the U.S. Because we have brought together, I would say, a rather unique coalition of organizations, of people's movements, of trade unions, of folks who've all been fighting for democracy to expand democratic rights in the United States, but who for the long time have not been meeting each other, don't know each other yet. And that's one of our first objectives of this People Summit is how do we actually bring fighters for freedom, for democracy, for our rights in this context to actually get to know each other. We're adding then into that mix the fact that most of our organizers don't know about the realities in Latin America. They don't know about the dark history of the OAS. They don't know fully about the bloody hand of the U.S. government in our region. We want to bring trade unionists from Colombia to speak, immigrant rights organizers from Central America to speak. We're bringing landless workers from Brazil. We're bringing leaders of cooperatives from Argentina. We're bringing a diversity of voices from across the region to come share in the summit why they're also fighting to expand democracy and to fight for democracy in their countries. And I think we're going to be able to achieve through music, cultural exchange, exhibitions, dance parties, panels, workshops, a multitude of activities, what the U.S. is most afraid of, people who are organized, in contact with each other, and building for their future. All right. We're going to leave it right there. We've been joined by Manolo De Los Santos. Manolo, thank you so much, and I'll see you in Los Angeles. See you in L.A. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.